So we have come to Matthew 24. We've done a sort of an outline and overview of it all. And uh, I had mentioned that I'm not a dispensationalist, but that I come to uh, many of the same conclusions as dispensationalists. Some people were very concerned about that, as if I had lost my salvation. Um, look, don't let it bother you, okay? Um, I don't fit into any uh, camp of theology necessarily, just because I don't want it to control uh, any of my interpretation of Scripture. I want the Scriptures to interpret themselves. I want to be as textual as I can. And I found that whenever, let's just assume that it's just me, that when I'm, uh, when I'm loyal to a specific set of rules for interpreting the Bible, I have a tendency to try to make them all fit into that uh, system of theology. Uh, I'm not comfortable with that. So I'd rather be free from that and just deal with the scriptures textually. Is that fair enough? Okay. So I still ha I'm still saved. And uh, I still believe in the word of God. I still believe in the second coming of Christ and, and many other details, though, all of which we'll cover. Also, um, you know, historically here at Calvary Chapel, we have had a mixed multitude of views in regard to many, many things, uh, whether it be things uh, of eschatology, which is just the study of the last things, the end times. Um, we've had uh, really strong Calvinists among us, and we've had many Arminius. Um, this is a place where we come together and we're unified around Christ. Uh, we have differences. Okay. Uh, who's not different in this room? Um, nobody agrees 100% in here. And um, In fact, how many guys know who J. Vernon McGee is? Okay. I love J. Um, I remember he was telling a story one time where he was sitting in his office and he was listening to the radio. And um, one of his students came in and said, Dr. McGee, who are you listening to? He said, the only person I agree with 100% of the time, myself. <laughs> and uh, so if you're familiar with McGee, there's all kinds of McGee-isms. And uh, so, um, and I don't even know if I'm as confident as he is. I don't know if I agree with myself 100% of the time. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, let's, if we have differences, um, you know, please come talk with me. Let's wrestle with them together. Uh, if you differ strongly with me, please don't sow your differences in the body because then we'll have some irreconcilable differences, you and I. Uh, that will just sow disunity here. Does that make, is that fair? Okay. As the pastor here, it's my responsibility to try to maintain uh, unity and uh, stability here in the body. So anyway, let's, um, let's get into some more of this. Uh, we're going to get a little bit into Matthew 24, and uh, we're going to cover the, the questions of the disciples in light of the historical mindset and the expectations of the first century Jew. They had presuppositions, preconceptions, and those, the questions they asked are loaded with all of those things. So we don't want to necessarily um, kind of ask those questions with them with the presuppositions and mindset that we have today, right? We want to get into their shoes as much as possible 
can kind of understand what they're getting at. What do they mean by the terms they use? What were they expecting? And all of that. And then we're going to explore some more the timing of the events that Jesus reveals okay, in the first part of his response to their questions in verse 4 through 7. Okay? And answering that will require that we look at a few other places um, in the chapter. Uh, without those details, it's just really, really difficult to interpret what Jesus is saying. And um, yeah, some, will be, some of it will be review, but uh, we've got to get these foundational things nailed down before we get too far along. And then lastly, uh, I'll have a word about really what our mindset should be uh, as we consider all that Jesus and the other prophets say will unravel in the future. Okay? Because some people have an unhealthy response to it called fear. And uh, we want to avoid that. And, and the best way to avoid that is to understand who it is that's in control of all of this. Okay? So we'll look at some of that. So why don't we do this? Because we want to maintain context, and I want that, uh, that um, teaser to be out there, kind of a cliffhanger um, in the text, which ultimately is the, the second coming of Christ. Amen? So if you would, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? I'm going to read to verse 35, not the whole sermon. Remember, in context, Jesus had just finished giving the Pharisees um, a large portion of his mind, okay, cursing them and, and letting them know that they're in all kinds of trouble. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceive you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. You hear him? See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then... They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. 
but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and he'll gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, know that it is near the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Lord Jesus, we thank you that not only do you know all the details that will unravel in the end, but they're unraveling as you permit them to. You're in control of all of it. And Lord, I just pray that you would use all of this information, Lord, to encourage us to look forward to the coming. But Lord, as you say in your prophecies, that this gospel of the kingdom will go to all nations, and then the end will come. Help us to be a part of ushering in the end of the age by preaching the gospel. As Peter says, knowing that all these things will take place, what manner of persons ought we to be in holy conduct. Lord, so purge us and motivate us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. All right. Well, let's go back to verse 1 and 2. So Jesus went out and departed from the temple Disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Do you not see all these things? Really what he's saying is, do you not see them as I do? Because they did not. You see, the construction of Herod's temple the size of the stones, the architecture, the decor, the gold, it was one of the greatest wonders of the ancient world, and it outshined nearly all of the pagan temples that, that were dedicated to the gods of Rome and Greece. It was magnificent, impressive. 
And as Jesus was leaving the temple, the, the boys were just admiring how impressive all of it was, which they pointed out to Jesus. They wanted him to share with them kind of their, their being impressed. But through his prophetic lens, in the context of all that had unfolded with the religious leaders of Israel, he could only see the demise of the temple. Every stone was going to be removed, he says, thrown down. The idea of violence thrown down from its place. And the place of sacrifice, the place of worship would be no more as it is to this day. It's done. Now, this news was received by the disciples as we might, you know, receive news from a respected authority in the intelligence community that said, America is going to be nuked and be no more, and then walks away. Yeah, but, but they didn't just hear this from the perspective of you know, Jewish nationalism, from Jewish patriotism. It rocked them spiritually. For Jerusalem, you guys, was the city of God, and the temple was his dwelling place. This is heavy. All of their hopes, all of their dreams were wrapped up in the capital city, and the temple that stood in her midst. Th this was the place from which Messiah would reign and, and restore peace to Israel. But you see, the king of Israel just said that all of this would come to an end, and it's going to happen with violence. Because this, this news to the disciples, it was the destroyer of dreams. For them, it was, it was the, the crushing of their hopes. And then Jesus just walks away. Yeah. And he knew what this news would do to them. And he expected questions. But, you know, the, the walk out of Jerusalem was not the place to do that. So he moves on from there. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, which is really appropriate because you can overlook all of the city and see the temple. The disciples came to him privately. That should tell you something. Saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, Mark's gospel tells us that those who came to Jesus privately were Peter, James, and John. And the boys come to Jesus for a couple reasons. They're, they're super concerned, of course. But... They are now confused. They're completely confused. Okay. Three questions. When will these things be? When will the stones of the temple be thrown down? What will be the sign of your coming? And then embedded in the same question is the idea of what will be the sign of the end of the age? Okay. Now, the sign of his coming and the end of the age are really one question in their mind because... It's his coming, that's the thing that terminates the current age and initiates the new. But it's important to parse out the difference between his coming and the ages. And so I think that we'll essentially deal with them through questions. So the disciples are concerned, of course, over the implications of what Jesus said. But they're also confused because his comment about the temple was a detail that wasn't on their prophetic checklist. That was not something 
that they were expecting to happen to Israel, but quite the opposite. Okay? And all of their concerns, their confusion is, is important. As to their concerns, the thought of the temple being destroyed, of course, that's sobering. And the mechanism by which it would occur and the aftermath of such a thing is terrifying. For such a thing to happen would, would, would literally require the subduing of the entire nation of Israel. Yeah. The death of countless Jews, the ravaging of the women, the enslavement of thousands of people, and the permanent separation of families. You know, walking from the temple to the Mount of Olives is all of that stuff that they're thinking about. What are the implications of such a thing? The temple could not be destroyed without the shedding of the nation's blood. <clears throat> because nothing was more sacred to the Jew. Nothing was more precious, more cherished, and nothing was more protected than the dwelling place of Jacob. And, you know, the thought of such a thing brought back the haunting memory of what Nebuchadnezzar had done in the 6th and 7th century B.C. when Jerusalem was leveled, the temple was destroyed, horrifying things were done to the people, and then they went into captivity for 70 years. So like the disciples, like you, you the disciples had questions, and they, they were desperate for answers. But before we look at Jesus' answers, we need to understand where the questioners were coming from and what's embedded in their questions. Their questions and even some of the words they use, they're just loaded with presuppositions and ideas that were embedded in their mind from the early years of their education from the rabbis. When Jesus added his comments to their preconceptions, it just sent their heads spinning. They're confused. Okay. The question, when will these things be? When will the stones be thrown down? Is asked with bewilderment. And the question is this. How could that be possible? How Could you speak into my good ear? Because I thought I heard you say the, t the temple is going to be destroyed. That'll come out in a bit. They also ask, what will be the sign of your coming? So keeping the first question in mind, the, the question appears this way. If the temple is going to be destroyed, well, what then will be the sign of your coming? They're trying to work it all together. Now, a sign, of course, is a miraculous occurrence, something that, that, it, that supersedes the natural laws, something completely out of the ordinary transcends what is normal. And then the word coming, ecclesia in the Greek, referring to an, an advent, the, the coming near of something. And the Greek word actually becomes a technical term for the second coming of Christ as we see it in the, the, the letters of the apostles later. So loaded in their question was an expectation that a miraculous event would occur when the Messiah came. So the, the coming of Messiah, from what they had learned, what they understood, meant total destruction. Not of the nation of Israel. Not of the temple. Not of Jerusalem. But the destruction of all of the enemies of Israel. Yeah. 
But that's not what Jesus said. He said the opposite of their expectations. He said the temple would be destroyed, and that could not happen without a bloody war and the overthrow of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. That was not computing. It was just confusing. But what Jesus said about the temple actually agreed perfectly with the Old Testament prophets. Okay? The prophet Daniel, as we're going to have to explore because Jesus tells us that we have to, he was expecting the destruction of the temple. He talked about it. But it wasn't what the disciples had learned from the trusted rabbis in the pedagogue as children and then in the synagogue as adults. The rabbis had ignored just large portions of prophetic scripture regarding Messiah. And they only communicated half of the prophetic story to Israel. So the disciples, growing up under rabbinical teaching, they came to Jesus with half the story. They actually had a number of the facts, but they were missing many of the others. From the Old Testament prophecies, there would be two separate comings of Messiah. We understand that, right? Well, imagine living before the first coming of Christ and rubbinging through all of the Old Testament prophecies and trying to parse it all out and figure out when and how. I think we should give at least a little credit to those who were trying. Is that fair? I think it's fair. Yeah. So what the rabbis had done is, is, is in looking over all of the scriptures, their circumstances of being under the oppression of enemies for years and years, who wants to pay attention to prophecies talking about a suffering and dying Messiah? What are you apt to look at? Victory. So what they did was they focused all of their attention on this political, kingly Messiah coming, crushing, liberating Israel. And then, of course, that's what they passed on to the nation of Israel. That's what the disciples grew up with. That's what they had accepted and embraced and were looking forward to. So having that ingrained in them, and for Jesus to say, it's all going to get how do you feel about that? That's hard news to swallow. It's confusing news. Okay? Now, to some of the rabbis' credit, there were a few rabbis, especially in what is called the Babylonian Talmud, they had actually taken all of this information about the suffering Messiah and the victorious one, and they had, they had parsed it out into two comings. And they, they have it pretty close to what is actually happened in history. Um, but the thing is, is it, it never gained popularity in the rabbinical community, and therefore it never was communicated to the people. It was just kind of lost in antiquity. For the first century Jew, the disciples included, thought that when Messiah came, he would immediately deliver them from their enemies, from Rome, give them all the land promised to Abraham, usher in a utopian era where the Messiah would rule from the throne of David forever. All of which is true. All of which is anticipated by the prophets, but not before the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus, not before the destruction of the temple, the diaspora of the Jews, the preaching of the gospel to all nations, and not before the regathering of the nation of Israel. 
And she's been gathering, hasn't she? You know what else she's been gathering? Enemies. Like never before. Globally. They weren't even known globally before. But now they are, and it seems that every day more people hate Israel than ever before. The disciples didn't have all the facts to put together because of the rabbis. And we take this kind of for granted because we have a, a Bible in our hands. But the first century Jews, not everybody had a Bible. Okay? You'd actually have to have an entire room because it was all in scrolls. And so they only got what was given to them by the rabbis. So they could not put together an accurate prophetic history. So they can do that. Another advantage that we have, other than having all of the revelation of God in the scriptures, is uh, we have that little thing called hindsight. That's a great advantage, right? I mean, we can articulate exactly how the prophecies relating to Jesus' first coming uh, played out. They've all been fulfilled literally in history. Okay. So, state of confusion. Couldn't figure out how or when or why and all this with the temple that fit into the scheme of things. The disciples were also asking, what would be the sign of the end of the age? Now, an, an, an age is, is a reality. It's the way things are at a given time in history. The current age that they were in, the one they were hoping would come to an end, was the time when Israel was subject to their enemies, where the promises of God were not being experienced. And, and so the disciples wanted to know when the age they were currently living in would come to an end, and what sign would bring it to pass? This question was also out of confusion. Like we've said, we, they believed that the coming of the Messiah was to be the event, the, the sign that would bring the present age to a close and usher in the new, the age of Messiah, the age of peace and prosperity. You know what the problem was? Jesus was present The Messiah was there standing before them. He had come. And instead of all of that, instead of the end of the age, instead of the destruction of their enemies, instead of peace and prosperity, there would be destruction and doom, which would unfold in a Jewish tragedy that would last for over 2,000 years. That is Their heads are spinning. They didn't have all of the scriptures. This is one reason why pastors should teach the whole counsel of God. It's another reason why you as an individual should study the whole counsel of God carefully and in a systematic and expository fashion. Okay? All the scriptures have to weigh in on our theology, on our doctrine, our faith, our practice, lest we just end up being short-sighted like them to who God is and what he has willed for us and what he has revealed to us about the end. Nothing in Scripture should be ignored, not for what is an optimistic view, that's convenient, right? Or what is convenient in itself or what is easy to teach, wouldn't that be nice? 
just teach the easy stuff. Stuff that makes you guys smile. As Paul says, you've got to be very careful about preaching what people can hear. 2 Timothy 4. The scriptures and everything contained in them should be revealed to God's people. So when the disciples, again, they came to Jesus, they came with expectations and presuppositions, all from the rabbis. What they knew was true, but they just didn't know enough. The chronology of prophetic events was out of order, and some of those facts were just completely absent. Jesus has his work cut out for him with these questions. How does he answer? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So Jesus warns of a coming deception by a multitude of false Christs who claim to be the Messiah. Do you guys know any false Christs? You heard of them? Some of you go way back to like Shirley MacLaine. How many of you guys remember Shirley MacLaine? Those of you under 40 know Shirley MacLaine. Out on a limb, just very broken, <laughs> claiming to be a Christ and having the Christ spirit, all kinds of crazy nonsense. Who is another false Christ? Huh? David Koresh? Okay. From Ghana? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's been a few. Yeah. Jesus says, many will be deceived, but he says, you've been warned, so don't be deceived. Okay. He also warns of wars and rumors of wars. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, there were false Christs before Christ, and there have been uh, false Christs since Christ, okay? And especially since the advent of YouTube. Uh, it seems to give birth to them daily. So, and all of the, the false Christs that have come along, uh, they've kind of failed to live a sinless life, to die for the sinner and then to rise again. They seem to fall short of the messianic expectation. So deception existed before Christ, and uh, it's, it's been in our world since Christ. And when was there a time when there was no wars or rumors of wars? Not since the dawn of time. Yeah. My point is this. Was Jesus just telling them that things would continue as they've always been in a general sense? Is that really the nature of prophecy in the Bible? Or was he talking about a specific time in the future when these things would occur in a very obvious and concentrated way? Was, was Jesus providing generalizations? Um, I get kind of an allergic reaction to that, like, you know, these revival preachers who claim to be healers, and they go to a gathering of blue-collar workers and say, I feel like the Spirit is saying someone here suffers from back pain. Really? <laughs> you might as well go to an AA meeting and say, I, I'm sensing that someone here struggles with alcohol. 
This guy must be a prophet. Nailed it. Is that what Jesus is doing? The question has to be answered if we're going to properly understand this sermon. They unravel in a general way throughout history. You know, from the time of the ascension until the second coming. Or is Jesus speaking of the distant future when they would unfold in a certain period of time just prior to the end of the age? You know, that Jesus was speaking in general terms doesn't match the sense of what he says in the entire sermon. He mentions the end in verse 6, saying the end is not yet. But it's the anticipation of the end, isn't it? That's what that's all about. And then in verse 14, he says that the end will come after the gospel is preached to all nations. Was this audience alive? Or will they be alive when the gospel is preached to all nations? Please say no. They're dead. Okay. They're dead. I think that in part answers the question about the end of the age. Jesus is providing the details that unravel just before the end of the age, just before his second coming, which is exactly what the disciples were asking about. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And the one thing that leads right up to the termination of the age is the preaching of the gospel to all nations, to all people groups, ethnicities. But then in verse 22, Jesus says, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. That sounds really bad. Okay. There will be a time within the age that will usher in such tribulation that if it were not cut short, no one would survive. But Jesus says that for his elect, for their sake, those days will be shortened. Is they'll come to an end. Well, what event, what sign, you might say, do you think will bring those days, the, the days of that tribulation, to an end? Well, according to Jesus, this happens, verse 30 and 31, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The sign, which the disciples were asking about, of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. What will be the sign of your coming? The sign of your coming me coming in the clouds. Does that sound like something that supersedes the natural laws? Something that is kind of transcends what is normal? Thank you, Margaret. That was right on. Yes. Yes. And it's funny, Jesus has, he's had a tendency to refer back to Daniel 7 throughout his ministry. But here, he makes a direct reference to, reference to Daniel 7, verse 2. And that whole passage there is the time 
when the kingdom is handed over to Messiah. He comes in the cloud, and then he inaugurates his kingdom. So as soon as the gospel reaches all nations, as we said, all people groups, all ethnicities, Christ will return. He will bring an end to the current age, crush the enemies of Israel, save the elect, and inaugurate his earthly kingdom, which is the messianic age. And with it will come peace and prosperity. Now, I said I wasn't a dispensationalist, but we come to many of the same conclusions. Did that sound pretty close? Okay, so relax. Yeah, it's all going to be okay. The timing of the events mentioned by Jesus that lead up to the end of the age, they cannot unravel over a long period of time. They must take place near the end. Jesus tells us this in verse 34. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. What are all these things? How about everything from verse 3 to this verse. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. These events must take place within the time of a generation. Oh, Jesus was misinformed. Who's willing to go there? The generation that witnesses what Jesus said, all the way back to verse 5, will be present when Jesus returns. So Jesus was informing the apostles about these things, but he wasn't preparing them for what they would witness and endure. Their job as apostles was to pass everything on to the succeeding generations of Christians. So that whichever generation falls into that, they will be prepared. Does that make sense? People say, well, he keeps saying you. Have you studied Old Testament prophecy? That prophet, when you read them, you're like, he's talking to whoever he wants to talk to. Right? When Jesus moves into prophetic mode, he's referring to what the context demands, not what the apostles are asking for themselves. Amen? That's what's going on. They wouldn't be present for the preaching of the gospel to reach all nations. They won't be present for Jesus to return the second time. Actually, they kind of will because they be coming with him. Okay? And we might be coming with him too in a little bit different sense. I don't know how it's all going to play out. He's coming. And um, if you come with him, that'll be pretty sweet too. We can talk about all of that another time. This will come out even stronger when we look at um, Daniel's prophecy specifically. Um, he talks about a seven-year covenant. He talks about the abomination that, that, that causes desolation. He talks about the taking away of the, the daily sacrifice and offering. You know what is required to take that away? The conquering of a nation. Jewish nation. That's what was required in that. And the coming of the king. He talks about a seven-year period. Okay. All of those details come out very strongly 
in Daniel. I was talking to some people. Um, when I read uh, especially eschatology, I read all of the other views out there intentionally because I want my view to be scrutinized. And so all the, the people that I've read that disagree with me, they come to verse 15 where, tell, where Jesus tells us to go back and consult Daniel and understand. All of those authors give lip service to Daniel. They say, yes, Daniel talks about an abomination of desolation. But they pay zero attention to the details that Daniel talks about surrounding the abomination of desolation. According to Jesus, we don't have that liberty. So we're going to go there. We're going to explore it. And uh, it's clear there's a seven-year period that we must wrestle with. And it's that seven-year period that all of these events are combined. We'll get there. Now, as Jesus has been saying, a lot of bad things are going to unravel as we get closer to the end. Uh, Paul says, the Spirit expressly says that perilous times are coming. It's all coming. Okay? The closer we get to the end, the worse things will be. How, how should we as believers feel about all of this? I mean, honestly, how do you individually feel uh, about these things when you see it coming? I've talked to many Christians that get very anxious and um, out of sorts when they think about what's on the horizon. Uh, other people, they don't respond that way. How should we respond? What is the prescribed response to all of this? Well, it began by Jesus saying, uh, do not be troubled. That's a command, by the way. Uh, be anxious for nothing. Those are, are, are good places to start. I would think. One of my favorite things to address is what we see in Revelation chapter 5. John, the apostle, is translated into the throne room of God, and he's seeing this very interesting scene. And he's witnessing this angelic worship. He sees the throne of God and him who sits on it. And then in the hand of him who sits on the throne is this scroll. And then the word goes out and says, who is worthy to, to take the scroll and to open its seals? And it says that no one was found anywhere to do that. And so John says he began to weep. Now, if I understand the text correctly, John begins to weep because it, if that scroll is not opened, then things will continue as they always have. Sin, suffering, illness, death, rebellion. The world will just continue in that state. So he weeps. But then the angel says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy to take the scroll. And then he looks, and what does he see? He sees a lamb that looked as though, it, as though it had been slain. So it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. He's the one worthy. And he goes and he takes the scroll, and the scroll is sealed with seven wax seals on it. And I love the image of that whole thing, is that all that is contained in the seals, all that is contained 
in the scroll are all of the events that lead up to the end. Just the chaos, that seemingly chaos. But there, Jesus is holding it all in his hands. That should be comforting to everyone. It's in his hand. Okay? And he is the one that's worthy to break its seals and to unleash the things that will happen. So he's the one that the only one that has the authority to do that, and he decides when. I love that. He decides when the events begin. He determines how they unfold, and he has appointed the time of their conclusion. You have to understand that. You have to understand that. He's revealed all of these things to us. He will bring them to an orchestrated end exactly as he has determined. Exactly as he's determined. He is in control. And he who saved you will safely bring you to his throne. You have no room for anxiety in your faith. Amen? We do not fear what our king has in his power. We rest in his sovereignty. What will unfold on planet earth is a thing called divine justice. Amen? That's what's happening. Okay. So do not fear. Next week, we'll look at the rest of the details leading up to verse 15. And then the following week, we're going to take a good long look at Daniel, just as Jesus commands us to. Fair enough? Okay, so read ahead, study ahead, and uh, we'll get into it. Why don't you stand up and we'll pray? What happens when you haven't been in the pulpit in a while, you get done five minutes early. It's so you people will continue to like me. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I just would ask again that we've talked about what things precede the end, what immediately comes before the end, and what terminates it all. And Lord, it is that, that preaching of the gospel to all nations. That is the commission to us. I pray that that conviction would rest upon us and that we would preach the gospel, that we might snatch as many from the fire as possible. And Lord, that as we, as we are walking toward the end, Lord, you've called us to be holy, for you are holy. Lord, purge us and make us more like you. And Lord, I pray for anybody that might struggle with fear over the events that would unravel. Lord, unbelievers have every reason to fear. But not your people. We are not the object of your wrath. So Lord, comfort us. Help this, this, the, the reality of your sovereignty to dawn upon us. We thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.